You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9. Over the past couple of weeks, we have um, seen, first of all, two weeks ago, the um, account of the woman who was brought to Jesus and condemned in her sin by the Pharisees uh, with the accusation or at least the anticipation that Jesus needs to do something uh, in response to her actions by following the law of having her killed for her uh, sin. Um, And in looking at that passage, we saw that our zeal for God is seen through the way our life has changed in regards to sin, not in how well we see and judge sin in the lives of others. That uh, they, they would appear very zealous for God and the things of God because they want to kill this woman for her sin. Um, but ultimately, what we see is this woman is forgiven, and uh, in response to her forgiveness, Jesus says that she needs to go and sin no more. So our zealousness for God is best seen in how we uh, are changed when we're forgiven of our sin and not in how well we identify sin and judge it in the lives of others. So we talked about not using God's law to promote our own agendas. We don't use it to uh, be vengeful towards others. We don't Uh, fail in applying God's law upon our own actions. We don't need to miss opportunities to repent when we're convicted. We talked about the Pharisees walking away when Jesus says, cast the first stone if if you're without sin. Instead of uh, confessing their sin, they just walk away from that conviction. And then we talked about not mistaking God's forgiveness as a license to continue in sin, that in response to the forgiveness, the woman is uh, told to, to go and sin no more. Last week, we saw Jesus teaching about being the light of the world and how he saves We said that he comes as our saving light, bringing purpose, direction, and ultimate freedom to those who abide in obedience to his word. We saw some gospel points last week from a pretty lengthy passage that in that passage in chapter 8, Jesus is making himself equal with God, perfect in every way, uh, that without Jesus, we exist in a state of darkness, and so we need him to be that light for us, um, that due to sin, we're destined to eternal judgment and separation, uh, that our heritage cannot save us, that Uh, We can't rely upon Christian parents. We can't rely upon uh, growing up in church that our sin destines us to eternal judgment and salvation and that it's only by believing in Jesus that we can escape that destiny. And then our ongoing response to the Bible reveals the genuineness of our salvation, that once we are saved, we are called to abide in his word. And then as we are reading and studying his word, the genuineness of our salvation comes out in how we uh, obey his word Um, We said that time in the word is our active effort to abide in him. Obeying his word is our active effort to persevere. And that failure to persevere in God's word shows that we are not true disciples. And so I challenged you last week to determine what it means for you to be in God's word. Um, What does it mean for you to abide in his word? What does that look like for your calendar, your schedule, to to set some, uh, some plans in place to make sure that you are abiding in his word and that you're finding ways to be obedient to him through it. We come now to John chapter 9, and I told you rather than uh, flying through this chapter and trying to cover it all in one week, we are going to specifically look at verses 1 through 3. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, uh, told you earlier that, that Jesus is wanting to correct an, inc- an incorrect uh, perspective, an incorrect worldview on how God works um, and how he acts. And uh, Jesus identifies this flawed thinking in them. 
and then uses this passage to help correct it. And I think it's a perspective that sometimes if we're not careful, we fall back into as well, right? Like we may know the truth that, that what they're proposing here is not accurate, um, is not how God always works. But I think sometimes if we're not careful, we can default back into thinking this way. I don't know how many of you have ever uh, had uh, a situation where family member or friend maybe is going through so much that you do start to question, man, what did they do to, to warrant this, to deserve this, right? Um, I think we are prone to assume that sin is uh, occurring in somebody's life when bad things are happening to them because I think it ultimately makes us feel a little bit better about God. That we, we claim that God is good, we claim that God is in control, to admit that there is a situation where bad things are happening to somebody and that person did not do bad things to deserve it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, right? To think that somebody is doing for all practical purposes the things that they should be doing, right? Pursuing righteousness, pursuing obedience, and yet they are receiving or reaping bad things, suffering type things, painful type things. I don't know that that always sits well with us. It may sit well in discussion groups when we talk about God in theory, like this is how God operates. We know this from his word. But practically, when we are on the phone with somebody and they're, they're telling us the things that they're that are going through or things that are happening to them, I think we get uncomfortable a little bit to think that God would allow this to happen to this individual. I mean, there's got to be something that, that has warranted this. Maybe, maybe there's some way in, 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 in the fact that they deserve this, and then they can confess it and get rid of it and get back on track, right? Because I think that other piece is, man, if, if, if pain and suffering is happening because of sin, well, we would expect then a confession of that sin to then relieve the suffering and the pain. So to admit that pain and suffering happens without specific sins occurring, well, now it kind of takes it out of our control to get rid of it too, right? Because, you know, if we can confess the sin, then maybe the suffering will cease. And to admit that the suffering's happening not because of sin, well, now there's nothing to confess to get rid of this, right? So I think there's a lot of things that work here. As the disciples see this situation, I think there's a good, por- a good portion of them that feels like, man, if we can attribute this to sin, well, now this makes more sense to us, right? Here's a guy who's been blind from birth, well, that doesn't seem like, a, like something a good God would do. There's got to be something going on here, some type of sinful peace that we're not aware of that would justify this in our minds, right? Um, and so Jesus wants to correct that thinking. So from a summary sentence standpoint, I want us to see today that because God is sovereign, we can trust there is always good purpose behind the pain he allows in our life. Because God is sovereign, we can trust there is always good purpose behind the pain he allows in our life for our kids. Sometimes bad things, happens, uh, bad things happen to Christians, but God always has a purpose for those bad things, right? Because God is sovereign, we can trust there is always good purpose behind the pain he allows in our life. Now, this miracle of, the, of healing the blind man, it authenticates Jesus' claim to be the light of the world. So this passage happens on the heels of what we just saw last week where Jesus is teaching and preaching that he is the light of the world, that he has come to attack darkness. 
He has come to remove darkness. He has come to, to share light, to spread light, to create light. And he comes back to that theme we'll see next week in uh, verse 5. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Right? So what he does here, the way that he performs this miracle, it's meant to authenticate his claim to be the light of the world. He is bringing light into a specific life where that person has only known darkness. All right? This story unfolds in response to this, the, the disciples' question here. Who sinned to cause this man's blindness, him or his parents? Okay, so the, the chapter unfolds in such a way to authenticate the claim that he is the light of the world. It unfolds in such a way to answer that question by the disciples who sinned to cause this man's blindness. And it also ultimately creates an illustration for spiritual blindness to be addressed at the end of the chapter. So he's addressing physical blindness here, but by the end of the chapter, the, the, the gears have been shifted more towards a spiritual blindness. In verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you, ha- you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And so Jesus is using this miracle to open up discussions about spiritual blindness, spiritual darkness, okay? Um, what we know to be true in talking about some of these issues is that all pain and suffering exists as a result of the fall, right? So the reason this individual could have even been born blind, right, deformed, disabled, is a result of the fall. It is a result of sin, right? All pain and all suffering exists as a result of sin. So death, uh, broken relationships, uh, suffering, pain, everything can be grouped under the umbrella that these things exist. These things are a reality because the world is fallen, because the world is broken, right? The question, though, that is being asked is, does specific pain always exist as a result of specific sin? Does specific pain always exist as a result of specific sin? So, we can all generalize and say, yes, this man is born blind because he's ultimately born into sin. He is a product of sin. He's a, he's a byproduct of what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, right? So we understand that. We know that. As a general rule, as a general rule, the reality of, this, of sin in the world uh, leads to the reality of pain in the world. But does specific pain exist because of specific sin? That's the question that's being asked. Yes, as a general rule, pain and suffering exist because of sin. But when that's directly applied in my life, should I see it as a direct response to sin in my life? All right? C.S. Lewis, uh, in talking about the problem of pain, says this. And and not that he believes this, but this is the the problem that critics will uh, draw up in regards to the Christian faith. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. Right? So our Christian faith tells us that God is good and that God is almighty, right? That he is not lacking power, nor is his goodness tainted, right? 
But the critic then would say, the lost person would then raise this concern in looking around and seeing pain and suffering in the world. If God's good, he would want his creatures to be happy. And if he's almighty, he would have the ability to make them happy. But God's creatures aren't happy. Therefore, God's either not good or he lacks the power to carry out those wishes or maybe even both. The Bible is needed to throw more light on this situation, right? The, the, the Bible helps us understand how the, the, the pain and suffering in the world is not a problem and does not violate God's goodness or his power, right? Um, so let's jump right in and see uh, a couple of points here this morning that I think will help, um, help us filter how to respond particularly when people in our life come to us because they are dealing with things or when we ourselves are dealing with things, right? What we want, as, as we talk about the gospel of John, we want to believe in Jesus faster when things come into our life, right? We want to trust him quicker as a result of, of seeing who Jesus is in the gospel of John so that when pain and suffering comes into our life, we are very quick to trust him versus doubt him or question him. Right? I think this chapter helps us see that uh, more. Number one, do not think legalistically about your suffering. Do not think legalistically about your suffering. For our kids, sometimes bad things happen even when we don't sin. Now again, we're talking about in general terms of specific sins. We're always, we are always guilty of sin in regards to we are never going to be made perfect until Jesus returns. So we could always attest to the fact that I've got some type of unconfessed sin in my life that could be confessed that I have failed to confess, right? But sometimes what we see in this passage, Jesus alludes to here, is that sometimes bad things just happen and there isn't a specific sin to tie it to. He says, this guy didn't do anything, nor did his parents do anything. Now, it would be weird to us if this kid was born blind because of his own sinful choices, because that would mean that in some way he was committing sins within the womb. But we do know he is born with the capacity to be blind because he is born into sin, right? So as a sinful uh, conception in the womb, the possibility exists for him to be blind because pain and suffering exists because of the fall. Right? But we don't need to think legalistically about our suffering. What do we mean by legalistically? When we start to apply our performance uh, with God's favor. Right? When we're starting to say that we keep certain laws and rules, particularly things that aren't contained in Scripture, in order to generate God's favor upon us. And so the flawed thinking that's being addressed here is that believers have a right to be healthy and happy, so pain in my life must be the result of someone's sin in my life. This is where the prosperity gospel and the, the healing mentality that sometimes is attested to or, or applied to the gospel comes into play. It's the belief that if we follow Jesus, we should expect health, happiness, and wealth. That why would God not respond to his kids this way? Right? So the flawed thinking that gets the disciples even off track in their approach to this situation is that believers have a right to be healthy and happy. So any pain that we endure in life must be the result of someone's sin in my life, either mine or somebody else's. And what makes this confusing is that sometimes that is the case, right? Um, and there's numerous cases that we'll look at, and we'll look at this a little bit later, but just to mention one that I don't 
refer to later. Think about the story in um, the Old Testament where Joshua is leading the children of Israel into the promised land, right? And Achan has disobeyed God, has held back material, hidden material that he was forbidden to take. They go into battle Ai, and there's a, there's a disaster in that battle, right? That the, the Israel is slaughtered in that battle. Men die in that battle because of Achan's sin, right? So that's a situation where some people were the product of somebody else's sin. They, they endured suffering because of somebody else's sin. So because those scenarios exist, sometimes we're very quick to default into assuming that that has to be the case in all situations. Believers have a right to be healthy and happy is not accurate, nor is it true, right? That um, we are promised certain things in Scripture, particularly that God works all things for good purposes, and that long-term our inheritance is intact and eternity with him forever. But what we see in the meantime is that as we are, as we are waiting and longing for that eternity, that we can expect pain and suffering and trials and difficulties. And then in the midst of those, we can trust that they're going to be used for good purposes. But sometimes we get off kilter and think that um, believers have a right to be healthy and happy and wealthy. And sometimes that's because we see other believers who are, right? Because it's not true that every believer in our life is suffering and enduring trials and difficulties and pain. A lot of us know believers who are very happy, who are very healthy, and who are also very wealthy, right? So it's not that, hey, we can all just take comfort in the fact that we're all in this together and none of us are, are healthy and happy and wealthy, right? Some of us are, some of us aren't. And it's a flawed way of thinking and assuming that we should all be on one side, that we should all be healthy, wealthy, and happy. I think it's also a flawed thinking to think that nobody should be healthy, wealthy, and happy if they're following Jesus either, right? That, that nowhere in scripture are we, said, are we told that everybody has to be in the same category, that he, he chooses to bless and to withhold according to greater purposes that we're not always clued into. All right, so the disciples are wrestling with this. I mean, they're, they're being overloaded with information, I'm sure, as Jesus is teaching and preaching and then uh, working miracles and having side conversations. They're trying to process all of this, and they come across a situation that's maybe troubled them for a while. What are we supposed to do with the problem of pain and suffering in this world, particularly this guy right here who was born blind? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to understand his situation? All right. And you notice there, we must not think that our circumstances should reflect our performance. We must not think that our circumstances should reflect our performance, meaning we cannot connect our circumstances with our obedience, okay? That means that we can't assume that if I'm being obedient, things go great for me. If I'm not being obedient, then things go poorly for me, that that we can't from the spiritual side of things, think that way. That we can't think in terms of, oh, my circumstances should be an accurate reflection of the performance, right? That our circumstances cannot be used as a test or as, um, as proof of what's going on inside of us. It doesn't work that way. We do not earn or keep God's love through our performance, Circumstances are not an accurate reflection of whether we have been obedient or not. Because here's the thing. Sometimes scripture talks about his kindness 
being demonstrated to us so that we will repent. Meaning, he is withholding judgment. He is withholding punishment. He is withholding discipline. Instead of giving us what we deserve, he's showing kindness to lead us to repentance. So, you know, we'll talk later about the fact that, hey, when, when things are going on in your life that aren't desirable, it's always a great opportunity to pause and reflect and say, is there anything that needs to be confessed in my life? But that's not the only times that we should be saying, is there anything that needs to be confessed in my life? Because just because things are going great, you're nailing every job application that you put out there. You're seeing a raise every year. Like things are just rolling in your life. You should not default into thinking, yeah, that's exactly what I would expect based on my performance of how well I am doing in following Jesus. But I think if we're not careful, we, we would think that way, right? Like, so we don't want to be the type of person that thinks, man, when things are going bad, gosh, there's got to be sin. We also have to protect ourselves from being the type of people that when things are going good, that must mean I'm not doing sinful things. Or even more of a tragedy, I know there's sinful things that are happening, but God must not care about that because he's allowing things to keep going well for me. Don't mistake his kindness as though you do not need to repent, right? That's where, that's where this is a bad perspective. When we get legalistic about how our circumstances and performance match up, we can get really off in our own personal assessment of where we stand with God. That, hey, if things are bad, I must, I must need to find some secret sin that I've forgotten to confess to get this right and to get this off of me. The flip side is that and we can't think that just because things are rolling and going great, that he's okay with any sin that's being tolerated in our life either, right? We never get to a point where we deserve God's goodness in specific ways. We don't have a right to expect it. He is not indebted to us, right? So we can't act as though we are banking good things for us down the road by doing good things for others in the present, Right? Like God doesn't become indebted to us. Hey, I really appreciate it. I saw what you did on Sunday. You put some money in the offering, the offering box. Hey, I saw that you hosted some people over at your house. That means when you apply for that job next week, we'll go ahead and let you get that because I feel like I kind of owe you because of what you did for us last week. Like that's just not how God operates, right? He doesn't operate in such a way where what we do necessitates that he then act in response, right? Number two, we must not think that our pain is always tied to sin. So we can't think that our circumstances should reflect our performance. We must not think that our pain is always tied to sin. Flawed thinking if we assume every time something bad happens, it must be due to our sin. And that's what the disciples are assuming here, that sin uh, must be present. It's the only explanation for these circumstances. If there's no sin, this man deserves way better is really what they're saying, right? Jesus, tell us, did this guy do something or did his parents do something? Because if nobody did anything, this is just not fair for this guy to be born blind. He deserves better than that. Now, going back to that general rule, he doesn't deserve anything. He doesn't deserve anything that we would consider good because he is born in sin. Whether he's born blind or not, he's born spiritually blind, right? So the, the, the humane side of us wants to look at this and say, man, he doesn't deserve to be blind. What did he do to deserve that? What did his parents do to warrant this? For Jesus to look at them and say, well, his parents didn't do anything specific, nor did he do anything specific, that leaves this big gap of, well, wh well, why then? Why in the world would it make sense for him to be born blind? We can't think legalistically about our suffering. But number two, we do need to seek to find purpose in our suffering. 
We need to find purpose in our suffering. And we may not be able to find all of the purpose, but I do want to help you see how you can proactively seek to find some of the purpose in the suffering and the pain that comes into our life. The biblical perspective, so that flawed thinking, believers have a right to be healthy and happy, so pain in my life must be the result of someone's sin in my life. The biblical perspective is my pain always comes with a specific purpose, but does not always come in response to sin. And that ought to be extremely comforting to us as well. It's, it's relieving to know that when we sin, it doesn't always mean that God's going to, to act and punish or discipline or bring pain and suffering into our life. But the, the real assuring thing here is that God never allows pain and suffering to come into our life without some purpose. And it's not always a corrective purpose. And we'll see as we continue through this how that's so comforting. Because can you imagine a scenario where, where we're saying that sometimes pain and suffering, it just happens and there is no reason for it? How deflating that is for us to walk through a painful situation, a difficult, suffering-type situation, and to not know if there's any reason for it. Maybe there's no, maybe this is just how things are, right? And that's just not how God operates either. My pain always comes with a specific purpose, but does not always come in response to sin. Number one here, sometimes God sends pain in response to our sin to correct us. So Jesus says, hey, there's not just two options here. But he also doesn't discount the fact that those are options sometimes as to how to explain or understand somebody's circumstances. Because there are clear indicators in Scripture that God does send pain into our life in response to our sin with the purpose of correcting us, right? So it's not just that, that God punishes because he doesn't pour wrath out on us, right? There, there's passages in Scripture that are in reference to unbelievers, particularly in the book of Revelation, Second um, Thessalonians, where when Jesus comes back, he will bring justice on the unbeliever, and that unbeliever will receive what he deserves. And it's not meant to correct, it's meant to satisfy God's wrath, right? As believers, the, the comfort and the hope that we have is that God does not bring judgment upon us or punishment upon us without the corrective piece attached to it, right? Like, like it's being done to draw us back to him, not just to be done in and of itself, right? Um, some examples of this in scripture where God brings pain into an individual's life to correct specific sins. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15 is the account of David and Bathsheba, right? We know that both have committed sin. There's the excitement, potentially, of the child coming forth from this. But God brings punishment, discipline into this situation um, as as a teaching and corrective measure uh, for both David and Bathsheba, right? 
Psalm 119, verse 67 is a passage that talks about God's corrective acts within us. Um, it says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. The psalmist is saying that before pain came into my life, I was wandering, right? Like I was, I was moving in the wrong direction, but then God brings affliction. It brings the psalmist back to where now he is keeping God's word. In Hebrews chapter 12, a passage that we looked at as we were working through the book of Hebrews, is the passage on God and discipline for his children. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, uh, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 11 For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We see in John chapter 5, a passage that we were just in recently, not specifically God bringing uh, discipline or pain towards somebody because of their sin, but he is warning them that he will if sin continues. In John 5, 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. This is the guy who he healed by the pool. Said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Right? So there's this indicator that, hey, you don't get to just go live in sin. If you continue in sin, that, that, that worse things will happen to you than what you've already experienced. And then in 1 Corinthians, verse 11, lest we think that God and some of his, what we would call harsher discipline happens in the Old Testament. When we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, that the early church is partaking of the Lord's Supper, doing it in an unworthy manner, doing it in a selfish manner, doing it without uh, a worshipful, worshipful perspective about the work of Jesus. Uh, verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 11, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Man, we don't have time to delve completely into that passage, but what's Paul saying there? He's saying like, look, you're being disciplined because you're not putting checks and balances in your life to confess sin and to deal with it. It's allowing to be tolerated. And sometimes God reaches down and snatches us and says, okay, you're coming up here so that that, that, that you're preserved, basically, so that you're not condemned with the rest of the world for that type of behavior, right? So, so we see that God brings pain and suffering into the world at times in response to sin, particularly individual sins. While not in this case, blindness can even be a result of a parent's sin, right? A parent can make choices prior to or as they are getting pregnant that can result in this type of disability or this type of deformity, um, sinful choices that could potentially lead to this type of birth defect where where this guy's blind. And we don't know the medical reasons for why he is, but we know today that there are things that a couple could engage in that could potentially result in this type of thing happening. So Jesus seems to indicate here that, hey, that's not what has happened, but it doesn't mean that it could not happen this way as well, right? Um, Sometimes God sends pain in response to our sin to correct us. Number two, though, sometimes God sends pain so that he does not have to correct us in sin. Right, so that's a different type of perspective here. Sometimes we do things and God responds to correct us. 
to get us back on track, to get us away from whatever it is that's harming us. But we also know that sometimes God sends pain into our life to keep us from sin. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A lot of speculation about what this is. We're not going to even try to determine what this is. What I can tell you is that Paul had something painful in his life, something very undesirable in his life, something that he prayed repeatedly for God to remove from his life. Right? And God said, it's better for you to have it because if you didn't have it, you'd, you'd be lent towards conceitedness. Which sounds like a really minor sin to us, right? Like a lot of us know conceited people. A lot of us struggle with it ourselves, right? So if given the choice, off the record, some of us would say, I'm gonna choose to struggle with pride and conceit than to have to deal with something really painful in my life that keeps me from being prideful and conceited, right? Thankfully, God has a better perspective than we do. And he says, you know what, Paul? I'm gonna put this in your life. I'm gonna place it there to protect you from being conceited. It's, it's similar to what he does with the storm in John, right? That, hey, there's a bunch of people that are rallying around this idea of forcing Jesus to be the king and to be the type of king they want. The disciples would have potentially bit on that very quickly. Jesus says, yeah, we gotta get you guys out of here. We need to remove you from that tempting situation. Let's put you at the middle of the sea where there's a really, a really bad storm coming because that's a safer place than to be around these people that wanna make me king inappropriately, right? Here, God's saying, it's a better situation for you to have this painful thing in your life than for you to be conceited on a daily basis, right? Sometimes God sends pain so that he does not have to correct us in sin. Number three, sometimes God sends pain and it has very little to do with specific sins. Has very little to do with specific sins. Now again, as a general rule, the only reason pain and suffering can come into our life is because of sin and a fallen world. But sometimes things happen and it's not directly tied to a specific sin that we've committed. In Luke chapter 13, verse one, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus is discounting here that any of these actions that he references, this, this would have been popular news at the time, the front page paper, here's some things that are happening in and around Jerusalem. Jesus says, let's, let's look at these two situations. You think these people are worse than other people who didn't go through that? No. No, he says, I'm not tying that to any specific sin that they committed. That's just a result of sin in general, the fall in general. That's why those things are possible. Now, he doesn't tell us, but we can assume that there are great purposes in why those uh, events were carried out the way that they were. 
But what we're being told is that it wasn't because of direct specific sins that they had committed. Sometimes God sends pain and it has very little to do with specific sins. And that's the case in the situation here with the blind man in John chapter nine. God says it's not because of his parents, it's not because of his individual sins, it's so that the works of God may be displayed in him. His whole life pointed to this encounter. Everything from eternity past about this guy pointed to this encounter. Now, we don't know how old this guy is, right? But however old he is, we're talking about years of trials of trying to get around a world where he could not see, which is extremely difficult today. But think about all the the, the modern uh, tools and resources that we have to make that far easier today than it would have been way back then right? God probably had zero way to, to, to read or to communicate. Who knows what type of parents that he even had as to how much they could even support him in this. Probably not a whole lot because he's, he's begging, it looks like, he's begging to, to keep himself alive, right? So years of pain and challenges and suffering that he's had to endure to get to this day where he encounters Jesus, He's in Jerusalem, and he's similar situation to the guy that we saw healed at the pool. But what's the guy at the pool doing? He's still holding out hope of being healed, right? Like he's, he's hoping to get into that pool where he's heard that, that it has healing powers, right? So he's, he's holding out hope, just can't find a way to get in. This guy's not even near that pool. I mean, he's just kind of resolved to the fact that, like, me being healed, not possible. Nobody's been healed of, of birth blindness, right? I'm just going to have to beg for the rest of my life in hopes of being uh, taken care of. This guy was blind when Jesus was in Jerusalem healing the other guy. Think about that too, that this guy could have been healed way earlier than this, but Jesus allows him to continue to be blind for bigger purposes than just healing him, right? Jesus wants to build a, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to just heal. I'm not going to do all my healing on one Sabbath day. I'm going to really build a case against your Sabbath theology by doing this on multiple Sabbaths where I spread it out to where I really make the point about the Sabbath, right? This guy would have been present probably already in Jerusalem when Jesus was doing some of his other miracles and Jesus walks by him and doesn't heal him on those other days. It all points to this day. Jesus says, This isn't about his parents' sin. It's not about his sin. This is so that the works of God may be displayed in him. We may not be able to anticipate the timing for when our pain will finally make sense, but it can come in a moment's notice just like this too. And we don't want to miss opportunities for God's work to be displayed in us because we don't have a good perspective about our pain and suffering. And let's not miss opportunities for God's work to be displayed in our attitude that other people are watching. If we see the fact that, man, there is always great purpose in our pain and suffering, we can seek to find some of those purposes to make sure that we are working hard to let God's glory be seen in the ways that we're handling some of these things. His blindness specifically results in God's glory being displayed in several ways. And we're gonna talk more specifically about these as we work through uh, chapter nine, but I wanna give you just a, 
uh, just four ways specifically that we can see God's glory and God's work being put on display in this passage. Um, Number one, the disciples get a bigger picture of who God is. For our kids, the, the disciples learned more about God, right? Before this, even though we have the account of Job where, where these principles are being uh, taught in the Old Testament, I think the disciples get the fact now as they see this played out that, hey, God operates differently than we thought, right? That pain and suffering is not always tied to sin specifically, that sometimes there's bigger purposes that we're not aware of. So the disciples' concept of who God is grows through the healing of this man. So this guy's been born blind and has grown up blind and has suffered in his blindness partly so that a group of disciples can learn more about God when he's healed. Number two, the disciples get a bigger picture of who Jesus is. So bigger picture of who God is. Jesus corrects the thinking that all affliction must be a form of divine punishment. Number two, a bigger picture of who Jesus is. He's validating again that he is the Messiah who can heal any disease. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it talks about him healing all kinds of diseases. Matthew chapter 11 is the passage where he uh, shores up any of the doubts that John the Baptist has by talking about the fact that he is healing the blind. You read through the rest of this chapter, this guy's talking about the fact that this hasn't ever been done before. This hasn't ever been done before. So bigger picture of who God is, but a bigger picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is now stepping into uncharted territory where his power is being put on display and it's power that they've never seen before. Never seen before, right? Number three, God reveals to us that disabilities are unique ways to display his glory rather than accidents or punishments. I mean, this is huge too. Because I think sometimes we can, in our flawed way of thinking, immediately assume that somebody who's born with some type of disability, that it's the fruit of some type of sin. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've had uh, lots of conversations with Chris about the suffering that he endures with his condition and, and why that's the case. And I know Chris has gone through ups and downs in his life of wondering, am I at fault for anything to warrant this type of condition, Right? What this passage assures us of is that disabilities should not be thought of as accidents or punishments, but as unique ways to display God's glory. That that God creates intentionally, even in the midst of a fallen world. That he creates our children intentionally, despite the fact that they are being born in a fallen world. A fallen world where they are subjected to potential disabilities they are created uniquely in those disabilities to display God's glory. Which, which should give uh, great encouragement to any of us who God ever chooses to bless us with a child who has some type of disability, whether that's extreme or minor. But this isn't a reflection of some sin in your life. This isn't an accident that, that God said, you know what, we got a lot of normal people I'd like to display my glory in some people that are a little bit different, right? 
So this is, this is really cool to see how God and Jesus step in right here and, and kind of transform the thinking here that disabilities aren't accidents or punishments. They are unique ways to display God's glory, right? Number four, the man receives salvation and the Pharisees have their guilt increased. For our kids, the blind man gets saved. This guy gets saved from this. And I guarantee you, you ask him in heaven when we get there, hey, would you trade your salvation for all those years that you were blind so that you could see during that whole time? Like, would you trade your childhood to be able to see in exchange for eternity that you've been enjoying? Man, he would say, gosh, I would, I would, I would have choose, chosen a lifetime of blindness for what I'm receiving right now, right? So God displays his work in this man's life by saving him after years of suffering with this condition. But he also increases the guilt of the Pharisees, which makes him even more just, if that's possible, but certainly shows his justice when he punishes the Pharisees one day. Those that never repent, those that never turn to him, he will bring punishment upon them, not to correct them anymore, but because they deserve it. They deserve his wrath, right? They've stored up wrath for the day of judgment. I know this is small, but man, I was just really encouraged by, um, and I didn't write her name down. She's, she's like a contributor to the Desiring God blog. Um, but here's what this lady had to say. She said, Reformed theology has offered me life-giving hope in the wake of unspeakable sorrow. I understand it sounds cruel to say that God willed my infant son's death, but believing that my son died against God's will is far worse. That would mean that God is not in control. Evil can ultimately win, and my future is uncertain. Moreover, it would mean that my son's death was random, meaningless, without purpose. I honestly cannot imagine a more depressing scenario. As someone who has endured adversity, my greatest comfort is knowing that God is sovereign. He has ordained all of my trials, and therefore my suffering has purpose. That passage in John 9 undid me. Just as God had a purpose in the blind man's suffering, God showed me there was a purpose to my suffering too. Both were for the glory of God. My bitterness dissolved when I realized that the God of the universe had chosen me to display his glory. All right, so our flawed thinking is, is assuming that man, God can't be good and he can't be in control and he can't have power unless I'm healthy, happy, and wealthy. But what scripture says is something totally different. Is that yes, trials and difficulties and pain and suffering will be allowed in a believer's life. But that there's always great purpose in it. Man, because the, the alternative scenario is what she describes. It's unfathomable. Like, how do we get through grief if it's something random, without purpose, without meaning, and outside God's control? I don't want to live in a universe like that. I'm so thankful that God has revealed himself and how he functions in his universe far differently than that. That he has absolute great purpose in all the pain and suffering that we endure. Sometimes it is in response to our sins. Sometimes it is used to correct us. Sometimes it's used to protect us so that he doesn't have to correct us. And then sometimes it's just used for him to put his glory on display in our situation so that, so that much is made of him and oftentimes so that others can be drawn to him, right? Application. How do I know the purpose of my pain? Am I getting this because of sin? Am I getting this because he wants to keep me from sin? Am I getting this so that he can just be made much of in my situation? How do we know the purpose of our pain? Number one, I think it starts with examining yourself 
based on the word to determine any sin that needs to be confessed. It's the only clear way to know. Your circumstances can't tell you, right? So you don't examine yourself and whether you need to confess or not confess something based on how your circumstances are going because we've already seen that's not a clear indicator as to whether there's sin or not sin. You can have bad circumstances without sin, and you can have really great circumstances with a lot of sin potentially. So circumstances aren't a good gauge as to whether or not I need to sit down and search my heart and figure out, do I need to confess anything? The only way that can properly happen is by examining yourself in the face of God's word. And it goes right along with what we said last week. We have to be abiding in God's word if we're going to persevere so that we don't uh, fall into sin, right? So in cases, and so what I'm advocating for is that in, in every case, every day we need to be doing this, but especially in cases where pain and suffering is coming into your life, it does warrant you pausing and saying, is there anything that I need to confess? Not because of my circumstances, but because of what I'm seeing in God's word. Is there anything that I am willfully tolerating and yielding myself to, right, that I need to confess? Number two, request spiritual insight from others to avoid blind spots in your life, right? Book of Hebrews is, is constantly calling us to a state of accountability where, where we, we take care lest there be an unbelieving heart, right? That we put ourselves in position where we can be exhorted regularly by other believers. Not to where they use God's law for their own agendas to to judge us and to point out sin in our life, right? But to lovingly come alongside of us, potentially when bad things are happening in our life, and to say, hey, have you thought about the fact that that you are you are involved in this, you are doing this, that maybe maybe it is God attempting to get your attention about something right? Not as Job's friends coming in and and condemning or judging, but someone lovingly coming alongside and saying, hey, remember we were talking about this last week, and and you're you're, you're not really seeing this from a biblical perspective, and and now this is starting to happen in your life. Maybe there's a correlation there, right? Number three, as you're working through this, rejoice over the sins that you are potentially avoiding, right? Don't be so quick to uh, to lose hope or to grow discouraged in the midst of pain and suffering. Man, use that as an opportunity. As you've kind of filtered through and you feel like, okay, I don't feel like there's anything specific that I am involved in, doing, tolerating that would warrant this. Now, here's a chance for me to step back and say, man, praise God that this is happening because maybe it's preventing me from something that I would have gotten involved in, right? Maybe this is sparing me. Maybe this is protecting me from a far greater sin that I've not been involved in. Number four, seek ways to display his glory more than seeking ways to end it early. I think when pain and suffering comes into our life, that's when the the prayer requests start to flow and the, the longing and the anticipation of when can I get to the other side of this? How long, O Lord, right? But what Jesus is indicating to us here is that pain and suffering can be a, an opportunity, a way for his glory to be put on display, for his works to be accomplished. And, and we don't want to miss that by trying to rush the process and trying to end it early. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not advocating that, like, you need, to be, you need to love pain, you need to love suffering, right? Like, sometimes, like, football coaches get to that mentality, like, you need to love the blood, you need to love the sweat, love the heat, Right? I'm not saying that like, you need to find a way to just be happy and thrilled when pain and suffering comes your way. 
But I think we need to be slow to try to cast it off until God has really carried out his purposes in it, right? When we try to end our trials early, we fail to see the bigger purpose of the pain. Man, if we're going to go through it, let's maximize it for God's glory, right? Let's don't try to go through it too quickly where, where, where we're not able to display it like he wants us to. One commentator said, to short-circuit the trial would be to miss out on the display of God's glory in the trial. To short-circuit the trial would be to miss out on the display of God's glory in the trial. And then the great hope for us is that the glory coming to us will make all the pain worth it in the end, right? In Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Joni Erickson Tata, uh, well-known Christian who endured uh, an injury that's left, left her disabled, says, every sorrow we taste will one day prove to be the best possible thing that could have happened to us. We will thank God endlessly in heaven for the trials that he sent us here, which is a, which is a neat perspective right? Like when we get to finally see the big picture, that we'll probably be very thankful for things that we were very unthankful for here, (laughs) right? There's not a lot of, uh, a lot of times where we are prone to thank God for the trials and the pain that come our way. But man, if they're being used to correct us, praise be to God that he would send them to us. If they're being used to uh, prevent him from having to correct us, man, praise be to God for him sending those to us. And if they are simply being used in a way where his glory can be put on display in us. And praise be to God that, that that's going to result in our sanctification and most likely the salvation of somebody in our life as well um, if we have a good perspective about it. All right. Our family worship questions for this week. Uh, what are some purposes that God has when pain and suffering happen to a Christian? And then number two, who are some people in our life who suffer physically that we can pray will remain encouraged in their suffering so that God receives glory? Let's pray together. God, we confess that um, your ways are, are bigger and better than our ways. And with our limited perspective, sometimes we can limit you and limit the, the possibilities and the options that exist when we look at different circumstances and thinking that there's only two or three possible explanations for this. God, I pray that as we've seen in this passage today, that you would open our minds to realize that, um, that you have bigger purposes at play more often than not, than we can comprehend. Um, God, we're thankful that uh, pain and suffering doesn't come into our life without some uh, big purpose that you have for us. Lord, we thank you that you love us like a child, uh, like a father and a child. We thank you that you discipline us to correct us when sin is being tolerated, and we've, we've grown numb to it. God, we're thankful that you send uh, pain and suffering to us at times to prevent us Uh, from going down a path of sin to where we would need correction. And God, we're so thankful that that you have chosen to use us in this universe that you've created. You have chosen to use us as your creation to be a, a channel, a means of your glory being communicated to the rest of the universe. God, help us to see that you put us in circumstances and situations intentionally so that your glory can be put on display in our attitude and our reactions to some of these situations. God, help us to be slow to want to cast some of those things off. 
Instead, Father, I pray that we would seek intentionally how we can display you and your work in the midst of our pain and suffering. Help us to make much of you as you carry us through undesirable circumstances. Where sin needs to be confessed, God, I pray that you would, you would bring that to light through our time in the word, through our relationships with others. God, help it to become quickly clear to us when we've misstepped and when we have uh, been led astray and, and, and how we can come back to you. But we got, God, we know that, that a lot of times that's just not the case and you've got something at play that, that we may not even be able to fully wrap our minds around. God, we thank you for stories like this that assure us that our suffering always has a purpose. I pray that it would bring great hope and comfort and encouragement to us, particularly those that are in the midst of trials right now. For those of us that are gonna be facing them sooner rather than later, God, I pray this passage would come to our minds as we work through some of those things. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.